This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm speaking today with Michael Bach. He is a thought leader in the fields of inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility, the founder of the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion, and CEO of CCDI Consulting, Inc., Prior to this, Michael was the National Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion for KPMG Canada and Deputy Chief Diversity Officer for KPMG International. He's the author of the best-selling book, Birds of All Feathers, Doing Diversity and Inclusion Right, and most recently, Alphabet Soup, The Essential Guide to LGBTQ2 Plus Inclusion at Work. Michael Bach joins me today from Toronto, Canada. Welcome to the LifeSpeak podcast. Thanks for having me. So it's 2022, and, and, and if one is sort of putting on their rose-colored glasses, we might think that everything is just sort of hunky-dory, so to speak, and that being a member of the LGBTQ2 plus communities is just very much now accepted in the workplace. But in your book, you cite a study that says 48% of LGBTQ2 plus people don't come out at work. Mm-hmm. And a 2015 report by the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion about discrimination in the workplace found that, and, and this was really shocking to me, 67.2% of straight cisgender respondents said that there was no discrimination against LGBTQ2 plus at work, while 62.3% of the LGBTQ2 plus respondents said that they had either witnessed or experienced discrimination. So things aren't really all that hunky-dory after all, are they? You know, I think that is a not a simple question to answer. I think in some ways, for some members of the community, we're doing good. And I'll say the caveat is in comparison to some parts of the world, keeping in mind that there are 71 countries on the planet where it's illegal to be gay or lesbian. And uh, in fact, 11 of those, the punishment is death. So comparatively, we're doing pretty well. I would say, though, that there are still issues of homophobia, transphobia, and biphobia we see on a daily basis. You, as a queer person, just walking through life, there is, uh, you know, any moment you could face violence and discrimination. And sometimes it seems quite arbitrary and difficult to identify when those moments are going to happen. So I think that is a, an important question, largely because I think, you know, with the advent of same-sex marriage, which uh, is now just about 17 years old, everyone thought it was great. Like, oh, we're done, right? Yay, we're, it's inclusion. We have it. No, not not really. And unless you're in the community and you talk about the comment from the CCDI report about straight cisgender people not believing that issues of discrimination exist, if you're not in it, then it's not really surprising that you don't see it, that you don't know it's happening. It's a lived experience thing. I want to start with language in the book is called Alphabet Soup. And you say, you know, to start this journey of learning, you need to understand what a bunch of words mean. And we're going to talk about this in a minute. But I want to ask, why does language matter so much in this conversation? Well, because language is such a definitive part of how we identify ourselves and the terms we use. And people tend to be quite insensitive about language. They tend to throw terms around that they may not understand. They label people with terms that are identities. And we see this a lot 
what we see with, with both sexual and gender minorities. I'm thinking of a friend of mine who is a cisgender woman who she identifies as bisexual, but has for so long just been assumed to be a lesbian that she just doesn't correct people anymore. And these are identities. These are people's, the things that define who they are. So it is important that we have some sensitivity to the language we use when talking about people so that we are respecting them. Can we talk about some of the language that I think we've already used, that you've used just in the in the past couple of minutes? So mm-hmm. you use the word cisgender. For, for somebody who doesn't know what that means, how do you define that? So a cisgender person is a person whose sex assigned at birth matches with how they identify. I've already used terms that'll scare people. So when we say sex assigned at birth, what we're talking about is the experience at birth where a doctor, nurse, doula, plumber, whoever's doing the deed, looks down, sees your genitalia, and determines whether you are a boy or a girl. In fact, what they should be determining is whether or not you are male or female, because those are sex assignments. The other sex assignment, of course, is intersex, which is a person who has a combination of both male and female reproductive organs. Sometimes that's visible. Sometimes it's not. In fact, more times than often it's not. So that's your sex assigned at birth. If that matches with how you identify. So when you look at the mirror, you see a man, you see a woman, you see who then you are likely cisgendered. Cis, C-I-S, is a Latin term. And it essentially means the same. It's on on the side of is what it means, but essentially the same. So if you're cisgender, your sex assigned at birth matches with your gender identity. And gender identity and gender expression are not the same. They are not. Gender identity is how you identify. Gender expression is how you present. So I might identify as a man, which I do, but my expression is what you call gender nonconforming, which means that sometimes I present in very stereotypically masculine clothing and attire, et cetera. And sometimes it's more feminine. So sometimes I'm wearing nail polish. Sometimes I'm wearing makeup. That's my expression of my identity. And another term that I think we're seeing more and more in everyday conversation is non-binary. Can you explain that? Yeah, sure. So We talk about gender as a binary, man, woman, and that's been going on for centuries. And when we talk about a person who is non-binary, they don't identify as either a man or a woman. It's the simplest way to describe it. They may identify by some other aspect of gender, but they choose the term non-binary to indicate that they don't tick that box. And Gender pronouns, which is something we're also talking a lot more about, and people are starting to identify themselves with their gender pronouns in the bottom of their emails and badges at conferences. Why is that important? Well, it's about how a person identifies, you know, and it's about making sure that you're treating them respectfully and in the way they want to be treated. So my pronouns are he, him. And if someone was regularly referring to me as she or her, that might upset me, it might offend me. But if I identify as they, they, them, 
then referring to me as he, him would also potentially upset me. You know, gender pronouns are important in that they create space for conversation around gender inclusion. The important thing to remember about gender pronouns, particularly if you are cisgender, it's not about you. People would never misgender me. If you see me, I mean, aside from being very attractive, I mean, that's a joke. Thank you. I'm glad the laughter is there. I have a beard and I have short hair. So no one has ever misgendered me. But if you're my friend Shep, who identifies as non-binary, they get misgendered all the time. And putting your pronouns in your email signature or in your Zoom profile or on LinkedIn is a statement that you are conscious and aware of gender. And so when a person, you know, says your pronouns or says, hey, you know, my pronouns are they, them, you're going to be respectful of that. And it's a simple thing to do, but man, does it have a lot of power. So it sounds like what you're saying is that as somebody who's a cisgender person, whose gender is just taken for granted when people Mm -hmm. see them, that when you do that yourself, when you identify your own pronouns, even if they might be obvious to strangers, that you're opening up that space for others who maybe don't identify as obviously, outwardly, obviously, that it makes them more comfortable to do so. Yeah, that's exactly it. We're not taking gender for granted. You know, I start presentations by saying, my name is Michael Bach, my pronouns are he, him. I don't do that because I think anybody's actually going to be like, I wonder if she's a girl. That's not, you know, something that happens with me. But it is my way of saying to everyone in the room, particularly those people that do not identify with the binary of of man and woman, that they're in a safe space. I get it. I'm going to respond well to a person who talks to me about their own identity. You know, it's it's about going beyond yourself. I'm not going to lie. It's taken me a little while. I think you and I are around the same age. We won't say what that age is. No, we will not. Um, and. You know, I consider myself to be, I like to think of myself, I should say, as being open and understanding and curious. And yet it had been hard for me to wrap my head around that, around the gender pronouns. It's why I think when I read the chapter, I found it really interesting. It was enlightening for me. And I think I wanted to bring it up in this conversation because I think a lot of people still don't understand why we're doing that. Sure. And why it's important. Yeah. And and for a lot of us, it's very new, right? Our brains are funny little creatures. And we identify a person's, our, our assumption about a person's gender within less than one second. And society as a whole is very gendered. You try to buy a child's toy that isn't pink or blue. So, or isn't called a girl's toy or a boy's exactly, toy. Exactly. Gr- exactly. Um, so... It's been a long time that we have these messages in our brains and now we're trying to fight against them and say, yeah, no, that's not, we're going to try that differently. And so we're going to make mistakes. It happens all the time. You mentioned that you wrote Alphabet Soup so that armchair allies could become active allies. Can you explain Mm -hmm. what you mean by that? Yeah. So the difference between an armchair ally and an active ally is in the terminology. So armchair allies are people that say they're supportive of a group, in this case, the LGBTQ2 plus communities, and then they do nothing. 
right? They go to pride or, you know, they're not offended when they see two men kissing on a TV show. That's not being an ally. That's just being a good human being. Active allies are people that are actively involved in the work. So they are participating in their company's employee resource groups. They are engaging in volunteer activities that support the LGBTQ2 plus communities. When there is legislation that comes out, say in Florida, that is exclusionary of LGBTQ2 plus people, they're writing their state representatives and standing up in support of the communities. And there's a big difference between those two things. And one of them is very helpful. And one of them just means you're not a sociopath. (laughs) You also mentioned that, you know, the book is for the people that are sort of, as you said, in the middle, that are sitting on the fence, that aren't really doing Mm -hmm. anything, that you're not going to be winning over people who are completely biphobic or homophobic or just don't want to listen, that this is the book for the people that are sitting in the middle. I I have zero expectation that the governor of Florida is going to read my book and have his mind changed. I mean, I'm not convinced the governor of Florida reads, but sorry, he's on my mind right now. I think there's certain audiences that uh, I don't want to say there are a write-off, but there's certainly a lot harder to get through to. And we use a change management model called the five F's. And the five F's help us to understand where a person is as it relates to a particular issue or initiative. And when I think about it, the middle F is fence sitter. And that's where the majority of people are because they don't necessarily see that the issue impacts them. It's very self-interested, right? They're like, eh, I'm not, you know, I'm not gay. I'm not a lesbian, whatever. I don't really, you know, it doesn't impact me. Then we get people to the right of them who, not politically, but to the right of them who are friends and family. And those are the those are our allies. Those are the active allies. And then we get people to the left of them, again, not politically, who are the foes and fighters. And those are people, you know, Ron DeSantis is a fighter. He is actively working against LGBTQ2 plus inclusion. The majority of the population are fence sitters. And this book is written for them to help them understand why this matters. We're going to talk a bit more about why this matters. But first of all, just to sort of give a sense, I thought this was really helpful, to give a sense of what it's like to be at work, to be a member of one of the LGBTQ2 plus communities, and the mental checklist and the emotional load when someone says, what did you do this weekend? And it's a colleague that maybe you don't know very well, or maybe it's a colleague that you're out with. As a straight person, it's pretty exhausting to read this mental checklist that you have to go through before answering that question. Can you take us through that a little bit? Yeah. So this uh, is based on a model that a guy called John Martin created. Wonderful, wonderful person. And and he's, I have had the pleasure of engaging with him as I wrote this book. And it sort of is meant to identify that it's not a simple answer when you're a member of the LGBTQ2 plus communities, particularly if you are not out in the workplace. And there's basically two camps or two streams to the mental checklist. So in one stream where you are not out in the workplace, you have to go through the calisthenics of lying, of changing pronouns, of making up things or just shutting down. 
not talking about it. No one word answers. The other is the camp of people who do know that you're LGBTQ+. And the question is whether or not they get it yet. Did they refer to your spouse, your same-sex spouse, as your friend or your, you know, a business partner? You say partner, they think it's a business partner. They think it's a roommate. You know, people will apply lots of information, particularly when they're not comfortable, to a person's identity. And it's a lot of work because you don't know how people are going to respond. And for some members of the LGBTQ2 plus communities, safety is, is a big challenge because they don't know if they're going to be safe. They don't know if when they say to you, you know, like if I say to you, my husband and I, we went to the garden center and we got plants this weekend. I don't know how you're going to react. And I have to question that. I have to think, okay, what's going to happen? Is the person going to shut down? Are they going to discriminate against me? Could it turn violent? I have to go through that with every single person that I encounter every day. Every time I come into contact with a new person, I have to ask that question. I'll give you a perfect example. Like when my husband and I travel and we cross borders and we are a legally married couple, even crossing into the U.S. from Canada where we live, we have to wonder what is going to happen with the border security. Are they going to pull us aside? It's, it's happened. So that's the calisthenics that we have to go through on a daily basis. And there's a mental load to that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just thinking about the safety piece and always being on edge about whether or not you are in a safe space is exhausting. But also having to become the educator to be lying constantly to your coworkers, that is an exhausting experience. And you, you've been through this when you were younger. You were living in that place. Well, I came out in 1987 and there was no will and grace. There was no openly LGBTQ plus politicians and celebrities. So yeah, I lived through it and I still live through it. It's unrealistic to say that we're not still living through those times. I just got to a point in my life where I don't care anymore. I gauge situations to determine how out I'm going to be, how open I'm going to be. I rely on people's assumptions about the way I talk and my mannerisms that I expect them to assume that I'm gay, but at times they don't, which can cause lots of problems. This is the reality that we live through on a daily basis. I want to go back to a safe space. What should companies be doing to make things safer, happier, and more comfortable spaces for their LGBTQ2 plus employees? So safe space is a fundamental part of LGBTQ2 plus inclusion. And it's not a physical space. I mean, it is a physical space, but it's not like you need a room that people can go to and be safe. It is about how do you create an entire safe space in your organization. So first is around policies and procedures, making sure that you have it in writing. What are the expectations of your people in terms of creating that safe space? Without the policies and procedures, you sort of have a house without a foundation. You can't expect people to behave according to something that doesn't exist. So it's really important that you have your policies and procedures, that they are explicit in their language, that it mentions sexual orientation, 
gender identity and gender expression, making sure that you're using inclusive language. So in your policies, instead of saying things like husband and wife, you say things like spouse and partner. You're not using gendered language. You then have to educate people. So what does LGBTQ2 plus inclusive space look like? What does safe space look like? What does all of that mean? So I, as an employee in your organization, understand what the expectation is. Then having a zero tolerance policy and actually enforcing it. Now, I have some feelings about zero tolerance that you actually have to give people a bit of the benefit of the doubt. But at the same time, you need to have that in place so that if someone is overtly homophobic, biphobic, or transphobic, that you just show them the door. It doesn't matter how much they bring in, how much of a moneymaker they are, what their performance is like. You have to have a zero tolerance policy and you have to enforce it. And then you get into things like symbolism. So hoisting the pride flag during June, putting out safe space stickers throughout the organization. It is a visible thing. Keep in mind, one thing to keep in mind is that as LGBTQ2 plus people, we're the invisible minority. So it is important to have a visible identity that says, this is a space where I can be myself, where I don't have to look over my shoulder, where I don't have to worry that people are going to be considerate of who I am as a human being. And symbolism is a great way to do that. You know, whether that's also putting on a pride celebration or celebrating things like Trans Day at Visibility or Lesbian Awareness Day, et cetera. You know, it doesn't always have to be June. I promise you, I'm going to be gay almost every day of the year. So making sure that you're focused on LGBTQ2 plus inclusion throughout the year is just as important as anything else. And you say not just doing one or two of these things, that in order for this to really work, you have to do all of it consistently. You really do. Let me give you an example. You put up a rainbow flag without the policies. You are absolutely going to hear homophobic comments, transphobic comments. You don't have your zero tolerance policy or it's not enforced. Everything sends a message. If you just put up the flag, the message that you're sending to people who are homophobic, transphobic, biphobic, is that it's just a flag. It's just for show and their behavior can continue. You have to do everything when it comes to safe space to make sure that there isn't an unintended consequence. And are you seeing in in the work that you're doing with companies that companies are doing all of this? Like how many, how many are really doing all of it? Mm, that's a tough question. I, mean, I, I think there are definitely companies out there that are absolutely doing all of it. I would say that the majority are more in the pink washing camp than anything. And what I mean by that is June 1st, every logo on LinkedIn changes to a rainbow format. If I were to go into those organizations and perform some form of audit, would I find the policies? Would I find the education? In some, yes. In some, no. Some of the other recommendations that you make are, and I think this is interesting, is that you say it's very important to be asking employees on employee surveys and questionnaires about their gender identity. And you get very specific on how that needs to be asked. And just saying male, female, and other is not enough. So you actually give examples of the book, and I'm not going to read through all of them, but there's quite a few other questions that you need to be asking in order to make people feel safe and included, but that you need to be very clear with people why you're asking this and what you're going to be doing with that information. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah. So a lot of people get freaked out when we start to talk about data collection because it's not enshrined in law, at least in North America. They think that they can't ask or shouldn't ask. And that's what I define as wrong. They should absolutely ask. The question is, how are they asking and why are they asking? So I tend to look at Canada as a better example than the US on this. And I realize people just probably started throwing things at their phone. But Canadian legislation is stricter as it relates to privacy. And so that's why I I tend to look at that as an example. So you can ask people anything you want, as long as you do it respectfully, and you're within the guidelines of the law. And how you do that, and I, I talk about this in my first book, I talk about it in the second book, I talk about it on a daily basis. You have to be explicit as to why you're asking. So what are you going to do with the information? Who's going to see it? So if it's going to be, you know, the entire HR department is going to be able to see this, you have to put that in the privacy statement. You have to make sure people are fully aware of why you're asking questions, what you're going to do with the information, who's going to see it, and how is it going to impact their lives. And then you just have to give them the opportunity to opt out. So I don't have to answer the questions. And lastly, one of the pieces, you have to tell them where the information is going to get stored. And this one is really, for some people, a little difficult to understand. For IT people, they totally wouldn't know what I'm talking about. But data doesn't live in the ether. The internet is actually a physical place. And so you have to tell people where the data is stored so you know what law it's subject to. So it's if it's stored on a server in Canada, it's subject to Canada's Privacy Act. If you store it on a server in the United States, it's subject to the U.S. laws, including the Patriot Act. So you just have to explain that, that information. Then you can ask anything you like. The important thing to do is to ask gender and sexuality separate because it is possible to be trans and gay. It is possible to be non-binary and two spirits. The combination of letters that make up the initialism LGBTQ2 plus are a combination of sexuality and gender. And so you have to ask those questions separately, as opposed to just saying, are you a member of the LGBTQ2 plus communities? Because that really doesn't tell you what enough of what you need to know. It's a soupçon of information, but it is not enough information to really tell you, you know, okay, how many people do you have that identify as gay or lesbian or bisexual or queer or two-spirit or by another sexual orientation? How many people do you have who are transmasculine, transfeminine, non-binary, genderqueer, etc.? You need to dive into those categories, not just for your own information, but also to make sure people feel that they've been seen. Because often we only talk about the T in LGBTQ2+. Well, not all people are transgender. Some are non-binary, some are gender non-conforming, and there's a litany of identities there. So it's important for people to know that they are seen, that they matter. And then what should companies be doing with this information to make things better? Well, I think until you ask the question, you don't know. You don't know how inclusive your workspace is for people from the LGBTQ2 plus communities. So you ask those demographic questions in combination with questions around their engagement. If you're doing an employee engagement survey around their inclusion in the organization, you can frankly ask them with any survey that you're doing. And then you cross segment that data by demographic group to better understand 
the lived experiences of the individuals. Oftentimes, people will look at an employee engagement score and think, okay, we're done. Look at this. We got an employee engagement score of 80%. That's awesome. But what if that score, and I'm just going to make up some numbers here, and I'm going to use binary genders of men and women because it makes a clear point. What if you've got 50% women and you've got 50% men in the organization and the employee engagement score for men is 90% and for women, it's 70%. That's a huge difference. That's a massive, massive difference. Now break that down into the LGBTQ2 plus communities. What if you find out that people who are trans, non-binary and gender non-conforming are actually at 40% on the employee engagement, that people who are sexual minorities, so gay, lesbian, bisexual, queer, two-spirit, they're at 50% in comparison to heterosexual respondents at 90%. That's a big problem. Even though the sample size will be small, I mean, roughly speaking, it's somewhere between six and 10% of the population. You're still dealing with a group of people who are totally disengaged from your workplace. And until you ask the question, you don't know. You say that all of this isn't just the right thing to do, that it's good for business. How is it good for business? In any number of ways. I mean, I tend not to use the language of it's the right thing to do for a variety of reasons, largely because it makes the assumption that everyone agrees that it's the right thing to do. And that's not the case. The governor of Florida does not agree that it's the right thing to do. But in terms of how, there's any number of things. Look at employee engagement. Employee engagement leads to higher levels of productivity and higher profitability. And in the case of nonprofit organizations, public sector organizations, profitability is still an important factor. It's just, that's just about productivity. It's about doing more with less. It's about short-term and long-term disability, reducing short-term and long-term disability. Because if people are facing significant levels of homophobia, biphobia, and transphobia, they're more likely to be struggling with things like mental illness, which puts them on short-term disability, et cetera. You're seeing a reduction in complaints and lawsuits. And there's a significant cost to that. There's brand and reputation damage. There's an increase in market share. You want to talk dollars? The LGBTQ2 plus community is worth somewhere in the range of about a trillion dollars in GDP in the United States and Canada. So if you want access to a customer base that is very loyal and has a lot of disposable income, the LGBTQ2 plus communities is where you want to turn your attention. But you can't do that if your people, your your employees are charging you with homophobia in the court system. So it's all interconnected. And I mean, I could sit here for the next hour and talk about the potential impact on your business, both from a top and bottom line perspective. But the specific statistic that I would use depends on the type of organization that you have. In your first book, Birds of All Feathers, you say that, you know, for all the hope about DNI, most people still don't get it. It hasn't become part of our DNA. But how do we make it part of our DNA? I believe to make it part of your DNA, you need to focus on the business, the dollars and cents of it all. I think we need to take some of the emotion out of this conversation. And if we focus on the impact on the top and bottom line, And again, I apologize to any listeners who work in the nonprofit or public sector. Those are just terms that flow off my tongue a little too easily. But if we make it part of our business operations, how we function as organizations, 
then it starts to get ingrained in everything we do. And that's not just LGBTQ2 plus inclusion, that's inclusion of anyone. Until it it's really part of business operations, it continues to live in that sort of social justice, HR program, right thing to do realm, which when inflation is going through the roof, there's a war across the world that's having all sorts of problems. We're living in a pandemic. Things like diversity and inclusion end up flying out the door because they're not seen as a business priority. They're a nice thing to do as opposed to just table stakes. So, you know, we need to get them built into everything we do as organizations in order to make them count. Now, you've been working as an expert in the DI space for, I think you said, 17 years. You know, it's a long time. Has it gotten easier? I will say yes-ish. It's gotten easier in the sense that there are just more people doing this work now than when I started. When I started in this field, there were probably about maybe 100 people in Canada with diversity in their title. In the States, it was probably, you know, a thousand just sheer size. And now that number is thousands of people who have diversity in their title. And you see diversity officers in lots of organizations that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Mining companies, forestry, industries where you'd think diversity, really? I wouldn't say that the work has gotten any easier. I would say that it's gotten more uh, mainstream. What do you mean by that? Well, we're seeing more more people doing the work, right? We're seeing CEOs who have this built into their compensation structure. We're seeing world leaders, like take Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada, for an example. I mean, say what you will about him, and I have things to say about him. Every time he opens his mouth, he's talking about diversity. He made gender parity a requirement in his cabinet. He's got openly LGBTQ2 plus ministers under him. That didn't happen before his election in 2015. So it's become more mainstream and expected to see these things. When you don't see diversity and inclusion in an organization now. It is a glowing emission. And that's when it's people start to ask a lot of questions like, wait a second, why is this? Where is their policy statement? And people start to really look and look behind the curtain. That's how they're making decisions about who they're going to work for and who they're going to give their money to. Let's talk about you for, for a minute. When did you realize this was going to be your career path? It's mm, an interesting question. So I have been doing what we now call diversity and inclusion work for over 30 years. When I came out at the tender age of 16, long story, but I had been raised to believe that I had a responsibility to give back to the community. And so I applied that to the LGBTQ2 plus communities. I was volunteered with lots of different organizations over the course of my life. That wasn't a job. It wasn't something I was going to get paid for. At least it wasn't going to be a job I'd get paid enough, in my opinion, being the capitalist swine that I am. Um, And it wasn't until I was at KPMG when I started to see people with diversity in their title. I actually, I can tell a bit of an anecdote. A friend of mine, Chris, who I met in around 2005, worked for another firm that shall remain nameless. And their job in the US was, and in Canada, was exclusively on LGBTQ2 plus inclusion. And I was like, wait, that's a job? 
people pay you for that? And I, it was at that moment, I was like, that's what I want to do. I was working in IT at the time. I was an IT consultant. And it's not that I wasn't happy. I just wasn't, you know, I had these two lives. I was an incredibly active on a volunteer side. And then I had my day job. I, I used to joke, I had my day job and my gay job. And this was suddenly a thing where people got paid to do this work and I wanted in and I went to our head of HR and did a pitch and uh, they gave me a job as I say the head of diversity and inclusion at the time, it was the only person in, in the field. So the head of nothing, but I ended up building a, a nice little team under me and working for that organization for, for seven years. And it was this moment of when my personal and professional lives merged and it was a beautiful thing. And I, I'm so happy it happened. We're living through difficult times, you know, war and Ukraine and pandemic. And I'm sure that, you know, working in the field that you're working in diversity and inclusion can be frustrating at times. What keeps you hopeful and optimistic? Other than Pinot Grigio? Sorry, terrible joke. That's a tough question. It's not Maybe you're not hopeful. <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I'm definitely hopeful. I'm definitely hopeful, Marion. It's a hard question to answer because this can be a very thankless job. And I have learned over the years to very much celebrate my small wins and to celebrate those moments where I see the positive impact that my work has had. And it's little things that help keep me going and help keep me hopeful. I, I am very much a person who's always the glass half full. I'm very much an optimist. And as much as I see moments like Florida, like the 30 plus states that have passed legislation to ban young people from competing in sports based on their gender identity as opposed to their sex assigned at birth, I also see moments that it gets better. And we see companies like Walt Disney standing up to Florida and saying, yeah, no, this is not okay. That certainly didn't happen in 1987. It wouldn't have happened 15 years ago. But because of the work of people like myself and many others, I am not the epicenter of all things LGBTQ2+, but because of our work, things get better. And I hold on to that for dear life. Your book is called Alphabet Soup, The Essential Guide to LGBTQ2 Plus Inclusion at Work. Michael Bach, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast.